So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we look at Numbers chapter 1. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are so worthy of praise. And we can give you all the praise, Lord, not have to rob you of any of that. And we find great joy doing that. And so what a pleasure to sing together on this Wednesday night, Lord. Lord, we thank you that the word of God is true, every, every bit of it. And so even some of the parts, Lord, where there's numbering done in it, uh, there's still stuff to learn, Lord, still a deep understanding of you and why you do things, Lord, to help us even navigate this life today. So, Lord, we pray that you would teach us things about yourself today. We're grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. I was telling Gina today that my study, in particularly in Leviticus, really helped me appreciate the Psalms more. Um, there's many Psalms where we, we read through and, and we, we, we think we know what they're talking about, but we don't fully understand it. I, I think this, particularly going through Leviticus and now into Numbers, we understand the temple and we understand the way God set things up. You can hear those things in the Psalms. I was reading Psalms 115. It's one of the uh, um, Hillel Psalms um, that they sang uh, coming... Uh, as they traveled from place to place, and there's, they run from 113 to 118, and they were, they were songs, hymns they sang, and they speak of great truth of God. But in Psalms 115, verse 12, it just says this, just listen here, the Lord has been mindful of us. When you get into numbers, <laughs> you begin to realize how mindful God is of this sinful group of people. He's extremely mindful of them. He goes on, the psalmist goes on to say, he will bless us. And that's what God is doing as he, as he is leading them to the border of the promised land, preparing them to go there. He is blessing them. And then it says, and he will bless the house of Israel, particularly the nation of Israel. And then it says he will bless the house of Aaron. And even today we will see that God has a special place for the Levitical tribe, even at the end of this chapter but he uniquely has a role for people. He wants them counted. He wants to know who he has um, as he goes forward with them and he aligns them together. In the coming passages, two and three, we're going to see how they traveled together, how God laid out how they would, who they would be camped next to, how they would do things in a very orderly way. But here God is preparing them for the border. And I say that because they're not going to get in on the first try, are they? Isn't that sad when you think about this? God had the promised land for them, ready to go, right there. They come up against the borders, we'll see in numbers, and they reject the word of God. Ten spies turn the entire nation away from God. And so, as we look at the book of Numbers, we begin to realize that God is preparing them to go, but he knows their rejection. And I just admire God so much that he would... Love a, people, a group of people like us who are so stubborn at times. And when he has a great plan and we still rebel at times. Well, let's look at this book. I want to look at just five points. I want to break this down. We're not going to read every passage that has been my um, practice going through some of the Pentateuch here because of the long names and uh, repetition that we find in some of these. But, but I want to lay it out for you and I think we'll get a good understanding of what's going on here. Number one, the God of the wilderness. He is the God of the wilderness. Look at verse 1 with me as we begin to dive into Numbers chapter 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of the meeting. And on the first of the second month, in the second year after, after they had come out of the 
land of Egypt, saying, and we'll just hold right there for a moment. Well, in the book of Exodus, this miraculous rescue took place, right? 400 years of slavery, um, probably about 230 of those in, in hard, hard labor. They were in Egypt. God brought them out. He miraculously not only brought them out of Egypt, he miraculously split seas. <laughs> he provided food and water for them in the desert. He led them to the Mount Sinai. And there he appeared in this spectacular way on the top of the mount of fire and lightning and smoke and clouds and all of that. And they were in awe of it. And they backed away from the mountain as God showed his splendor in a unique way. On Mount Sinai, Moses went up there. He met God. He received the law. He's up there for 40 days. And the nation is down below breaking the first two commandments that they didn't even have yet. Worshipping a golden bull calf from Egypt. We know God severely punishes them. Levitical tribe begins to slay people till God put a stop to it. He let them know that worshipping anything but Him was sin and wrong and deserved death. After the second tablets were given, God gave instruction on the building of the tabernacle. It was to be the center of worship. Everything was to revolve around that. That's where God would reside with them. He gave instructions on sacrifice. And so God then through Moses establishes this great priesthood, this Levitical tribe. He gave them instructions how this holy God could dwell with sinful men and how they could approach him through this ongoing sacrificial system that would hold off the wrath of God till his son would come. And we, dwell, we, we marvel that this holy God would dwell with sinful people. We, we marvel at it because we ourselves are sinners. All of this was received in the book of Leviticus, right? This law, the instructions for the tabernacle were at the end of Exodus, and then they began building all this stuff. And at the end of the book, they've been out of Egypt just a little over a year. But the events in Leviticus is a month. The book of Leviticus is about a month, and we know this because it always says the first of the month of the first year. This book says the second month of the, after the first year. So we know it's a month for Leviticus. This book is about 38 years, you know, uh, is the book of Numbers that it covers. And all along, God has been meeting their physical needs. He's never stopped giving them water and food. He's been protecting them all along the way from their enemies, and he's dwelling with them. But what's really key here in the book of Numbers is God is going to expose their inner spiritual life now. This, this isn't something that comes on all of a sudden, this rejection of God. This was in their hearts. This was down in them. This is their struggle they had. And God is going to use the wilderness to show them their own depravity. And the years spent wandering in the wilderness, we do not see God withdrawing himself from them, which is very interesting, isn't it? They do some terrible things we'll see in this book, but God stays with them. In fact, he remains with them, teaching the nation that they need him. Without them, they would not make it. Again, notice it says in the end of verse 1 there, in the first of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, well, here now, this tabernacle has been erected. The priests assembled. We know that started around Exodus 40, the last chapter of Exodus, verse 17. Uh, the tabernacle is completed then. 
and then the book of Leviticus about a month, as we said, and they're, they're still camped at Mount Sinai, but now they got a portable tabernacle, and they're ready to go. And so Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, right at the beginning, says, Now the Lord spoke with Moses in the wilderness. I think the statement reminds us that there is an, there's only one way to do things, and that's God's way. 139 times plus in this letter alone, in this book alone, God's word says the Lord spoke with Moses. It is repeated over and over and over. God has the way of doing things, and we should line up under his way, not our own, and we fight that, don't we? Isn't that so true? We, we fight it in our own lines. But this book teaches what happens when you don't do things God's way. And so there's great lessons taught here throughout this book. Now, God clearly was directing the nation, but would they believe him and would they follow? And I think we know some of that answers, don't we? And we know they reject him at the border. But the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness was when never... I just want you to think, of that was never the intent of what God designed for them. God's intent was to bring them into the promised land. See, disobedience always uh, takes us off of the path of the blessing of God, doesn't it? He, he had, his intention was to bring them into this promised land. And so the wilderness is this temporary place where the nation's going to learn to obey. And I mean, even as I was typing this out, I go, I know that place. <laughs> I see some of you out there. We're wandering around. How you doing? Not good. Trying to walk in this life on my own. I'm out ahead of God or I'm falling behind, uh, whatever it may be, right? And so we begin to realize that maybe this title of this book, so many title the book when you study all the commentaries is The Journey in the Wilderness. And I kind of gave my own title. I thought maybe it's this learning to believe God in the wilderness. <laughs> Because I think that's what we do sometimes, right? When we become disobedient and we fall into the discipline of hand of God and he's, and he's correcting us and molding us and shaping us, sometimes that's difficult and there's, we can either fight that or we can learn from it. What are you doing? And so I think there's great lessons to learn how to believe God in the wilderness, how to learn from that. Well, these first 10 chapters describe how God um, took Moses as the leader to organize Israel in this march um, from Sinai to the border. First 10 chapters cover about 50 days. The next cover 38 years. It's, it's quite a fascinating book, isn't it? The nation that was brought out of slavery, they have to be transformed to come into the promised land. It's just life, isn't it? Again, my mind so, so often goes back to uh, Pilgrim's Progress and the reading of that and and when Christian gets saved, it's so wonderful. But then as he makes, he leaves town. Remember, his wife doesn't go with him. His children don't go with him. And he immediately begins to run into the storms of life and the difficulties and those who are trying to pull him off the path and so forth. And it is not an easy trail for Christian, isn't it? But he learned such valuable lessons along that way. And so the book of Numbers tells us part of that story, how God transforms them through grace and even judgment Get them ready to be a people who is in the promised land. One of the things I thought about today as I was finishing this, I thought, Lord, when they do get into the promised land, 
for the most part, they are pretty faithful people for quite some time. I think a lot of people love the book of Joshua because we don't see much rebellion in there. There are some hiccups there, a lack of unbelief in, um, in uh, Achan at Jericho, some affects their relationship as they go in to try to take Ai and so forth. But it's a nation that's marching along, right? And God's wiping out their enemies in front of them. It's, it's quite a powerful book as you study it. And so God was preparing that particular generation. The older one's going to die off in this book, but this, this younger generation's going to go in, and they actually live for many years in a land where God has for them prepared, and that took them to get ready. It took them to get ready in the wilderness for that. Second thought, God numbers his fighting forces. Look at verses two and three. God says to Moses here, after he's brought him out, after a year and a month out of Egypt, he says, take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, by their families, by their fathers, households, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years older and upward, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. Now God here has met with Moses in the tent of meetings many times. It would be the tabernacle, it's the same place. And he's given these clear instructions that he tells them to take this census. Not them, God tells them to do this. And they're only to be counting those who are able to go to war. So there's a particular group of males that God wants counted here. So Moses um, thanked the Lord to listen to his father-in-law's counsel. And you remember this back in Exodus chapter 18. uh, uh, Jethro came to him and he was judging all of the people. And he says, why are you doing this? This is crazy. You're going to wear yourself out. No one can put up with all this stuff. You need to have captains over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And so Moses did that. And so that because of that, um, I think this made this a little quicker process. There was good organization already in place. And then when you got to the end of Exodus in chapter 38, he renumbered the people for taxation to be able to build the tabernacle and all that they needed. And so there, there was some structure already there. Now, notice that they were to count by families, by their fathers, households, it says, according to the numbers of names. So this is very family-oriented within these tribes. Every male, head of head, by 20 years old and up. See, God knew that strength would come through individual families who you were united for divine purpose. Have you ever heard where you say, well, don't get on the other side of that family, man. They'll gang up on you. <laughs> I think that probably is part of this. These families were tight together, Right? They were raising families together. They've been out of Egypt now for a year and a month. They, but they also knew who they were in, in Egypt. And so these are tight-knit families. And so God takes these families and raises them up so they would be united together so they're ready to accomplish his purposes. But I also think there's an emphasis here on God's family. Uh, it isn't hard to see that uh, God has men and women who create families, right? Husbands and wives who produce offspring and they carry out God's plan. This is really care- clear in here um, uh, as you see God showing his plan for the family again. And so the census was, was only taken of men over the age of 20, but it's, it's 
These are men that are probably, I have to be careful here because there are a lot of mature 20-year-olds in here. Um, these are mature young men, aren't they? It's been interesting talking to both my son, two of my sons, my younger sons are in the army and they're about ready to get out. One of the things I said, sons, why are you getting out? Just wanted to know. And I said, dad, today's army is not the army you thought it was. We are constantly battered with gender conversation. We're beat up every day on things. And he says, then we, we have so many of these young men in here, they, they, they couldn't take instruction if their life depended on them. I go, well, who's protecting America? Special forces. <laughs> so be calm. It's okay. Our special forces are really good at what they do. I used to tell my sons, I said, sons, as you grow, you know, even in this world... When you become 18, they let you vote, and they may stick an M16 in your hand and tell you to go shoot someone. Playing video games and caught up in yourself and all those things is not manhood, even in the world standard. And when I looked at this, I thought, he's counting young men, 20-year-olds. This is our men in our crossroads ministry here. Men that are ready to go hand-to-hand battle with the enemy in order to protect the nation, God's people. Thomas Watson wrote a little bit on this particular verse and was reading, he's the old great Puritan from long ago. He said, I wish for a divine conscription, a command laid on everyone in youth to be ready at a certain day and an hour to take up the sword of spirit, sword of the spirit. (laughs) What's happened to our next generations? It's... We struggle in it, and today we see those battles for the hearts of the young men. I'm thanking the Lord. Of the, we've been praying for the last few years that God would continue to raise up our young men here, and we're seeing evidence of that. But I've said from this pulpit that the church has suffered from young men. We've not had young men that are ready to go out and pick up the mantle. And, and to me, I looked at this, I thought, oh, how interesting. They're going to grab these 600,000, and many of them are going to be these young men. But notice in verse 3 that Moses and Aaron were to number them by their armies. I mean, these guys were put into military readiness right away. If you're a part of Reuben or Judah or Naphtali or whatever, and you're 20 or older, you're put into the army. These are fighting forces, aren't they? And this was to determine the strength of Israel's developing military power, right? Who could fight for Israel? Who, who could take this promised land? So this land had to be conquered, and the first step was to know what resources they had. Who could fight? These people are a year and a month out of dire slavery, Right? I don't know how physically fit they are, but that's not the list. Are you 20, male, and older? You're in the war. You're in the battle. Now, without a doubt, Israel would, would eventually go into the promised land, and we know they go by the hand of God. We can't we make that sure. <laughs> it's God of God's hand. And yet, he used the means of these men to conquer this land. And doubtlessly, the effects of the census also would encourage them. Maybe they didn't quite know how many there was after Egypt. And as they looked at these numbers and 
their strength was shown and God was willing to take them and use them, maybe that encouraged them. Maybe also just the sheer numbers that God rescued out of slavery. Maybe that encouraged them as well. Before I leave this point, I got an interesting email from a dear brother in here writing on this census thing. And one of the things he sparked my interest as he wrote some encouraging thoughts. He, he reminded me that David's census really usurped the authority of God. Because there's a real difference, right? Here, Pastor Jason just preached on um, David's uh, sinful census that he took in First Chronicles. But here, God, God does a census as well. And you remember that, that what Jason said, and this dear brother wrote as well, is that there was a usurpation of the authority of God, and it drew pride to David. And then but he wrote in this email, he said this, he said, David's sin reminds you of the penalty of sin in so many ways. David was the guilty one, and the innocent people died. Isn't that interesting? So there's a Christological understanding even in that. And I thought that was at least worth bringing out how different this census is. David chose to do something that God did not want him to do. wanted him to trust him. He went ahead and did that. And the price of his sin, the wages of his sin, was the death of 70,000 people. And our sin, think about that. Our sin results in the death of Jesus Christ. And yet, there's this seed that's going through it. And even in this passage, thinking about Judah, and that seed is in there, and all these men are being uh, numbered and armed for battle. And in there, in that group, somewhere in that group, and Judah is a young man, maybe, who is the seed of the coming Christ. Well, we know he is for sure. And so this census is fun to think about, even when you think about David's Sinful sentence, and then God's. Third thought, God has always raised up men to lead his people. Verses 4 through 19. We'll briefly go through some of these, but look at verse 4 with me. With you, moreover, there shall be a man of each tribe, each one head of his father's house. Well, God organizes Israel according to tribes, according to the descendants from the, what we would call the original 12 sons of Jacob. And remember, Jacob was later called Israel. And each, each of the 12 tribes, God wants represented by one man. One man who's the head of his father's house. And would be uh, designated really to stand with Moses and Aaron and represent that entire tribe. Now, these are probably where these spies come from. In some cases, we'll look at that as we get to that passage. But in a sense, God was developing a form of government, right? And um, I think the old King James called these men chieftains. Is that correct? Um, I was reading something not too long ago about some of the problems in the Middle East. And uh, this guy who had worked with kind of the Secret Service and stuff that was going on and all the difficult things that were going on there said, we'll never get those tribes together because they're all run by heads of families. And the heads of families don't like each other and the other tribes. And so the only thing they don't like is American Israel. <laughs> And they've come together for that, but you can't get them to work together because all these chiefs, these rulers of these tribes don't get along. But yet here God pulls these chiefs, these leaders out, 
And they are to be men who follow God's leading and follow him through Moses. Now, notice that all tribe, 12 tribes are mentioned except the tribe of Levi. When we, well, as we go down through this, you'll notice Levi's not mentioned. But yet, there's 12 tribes. So let's remind ourselves that Joseph, what? Had two sons. And so you get Ephraim and Manasseh here. So there's always these 12 tribes that are encircled around the tabernacle. We'll see this more next week. Now, remember, this is a military census. That's what it is. So the absence of the Levi tribe among the potential leaders is important as well. We'll see that at the end of the chapter. Now, there's something interesting about these names in here. There's a few of them that I just want to point out before I kind of go down through their numbers here. Uh, Nashon, notice, notice in verse 7, Nashon. Nashon, from the tribe of Judah, is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Um, Matthew chapter 1, verse 4, okay? That's pretty cool. So here he is pulled out. He's the head of the heads of the families, right? Um, he has all these descendants that are with him. Uh, we'll see that number here in a second. And yet he is, <laughs> he's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And so the seed is in him right here in, in Numbers chapter 1. And then in verse 10, you have Elishama. And fascinating with this guy is this is Joshua's grandfather. Can you imagine how proud he was when the torch gets passed from Moses to his grandson? Moses did so much preparatory work to get this nation ready. Joshua takes that mantle, and he certainly had to deal with still difficulties with the people, but he's able to go into that land and watch God just wipe out their enemies. I mean, it made me think of my grandsons. You know, I have three grandsons. What will God do with one of them? You know, and here, so here's a man known. He was, he was raised, he was called out because of his leadership. And here he is this man, and, 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 and doubtlessly because he's a godly man, Joshua comes out of it. And Joshua's the man who leads them in there. And at the end, towards the end of his life, he makes this great statement, still why the nation's walking with God. It says, as for me and my house, we're going to what? Serve the Lord. Men, are you raising some sons? What are they going to do? What are your sons going to do? Are they going to love the Lord Jesus Christ? And it's just a great reminder when you look at some of these names. Some of the older commentaries that I read had very interesting takes on the names of these tribal leaders and, and gave possibilities to some of their meanings of them. And I want to kind of go down through them as we look at their, their names here. Most of them have a, a kind of a title that would give um, an aspect of faith or, or resemble the character of God in some way. And not one of them are Egyptian names. They're all Hebrew names. Notice in verse 5, we come to the tribe of Reuben. And Eliezer is the first one here. And his name can mean to be, my God is a rock. What a great name. Verse 6, you come to the tribe of Simeon. And here you get Shalalumel. And Shalalumel, his name, you can get this idea that my God is a God of peace. Or, or my peace is in God. They're a little difficult to really understand sometimes the full meaning of them. Verse 7, you get to Judah. Here we come back to Nashon, the, where the seat of Christ in. 
says, my people are noble. The people of noble people is the idea of his name. Verse 8, you come to the tribe of Ishakar, And here you get Nathanael, whose name means a gift from God. Verse 9, you come to the tribe of Zebulun and you get Eliabab. And his name means God is Father. Verse 10, you come to the tribe of Ephraim. And here you come to uh, Elishama, whose name means God hears. From the tribe of Manasseh, a half tribe, another half tribe of Joseph, you get Gamaliel, and his name means God rewards. Verse 11, I, 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 let me stop there, Derek. I mean, you, you can see where the character of God is through them, and you think, okay, you're going to come up to this border. Can you trust God? So many of these men fall apart. Verse 11, you come to the tribe of Benjamin. You come to a man named Abidin, whose name meant father is judge. Verse 12, you come to the tribe of Dan and you find a man named Ahizer. He says, my brother is a helper, is the meaning of that. Verse 13, you come to the tribe of Asher and you come to a man named Pajel, Pajel, and his name means met by God. 14, you come to the tribe of Gad, and you come to Eliasphah, I might have blown that one, whose name means, my God has added and multiplied. Then finally, verse 15, you come to the tribe of Naphtali, and you come to a man named Ahira, and it's interesting, it says, my brother is evil. You can trace some of this back to um, the promises that Jacob gave in Genesis chapter 14, I mean 49, as he was on his deathbed. But these men play this important role in both the disobedience and the obedience of God, right? Most of these men side against God, and their influence on the nation is really seen both ways. And so the definition of these names would be used to strengthen them as they wandered through the wilderness. Uh, maybe these older men were part of the group that died off, but their name goes on with this group of people and that prepared them for the promised land. God's a rewarder. God's a multiplier. God's a God of peace. Those things would remind them. Look at verses 17 through 19. So Moses and Aaron took these men who had been designated by name, and they assembled all the congregation together on the first of the second month. And then they registered by ancestry in their, in their names and their, by their father's household according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, head by head. Well, this great assembly now of these men ready for war, represented by these tribal leaders, is now gathered just 13 months out of Egypt. And God's gathering them, fitting them for war. And each of these leaders were responsible to count and um, show who was available as a soldier from their tribe and then gather them to hear the report from Moses. You notice in the middle of 18, it says, then they were registered by ancestry and their families and their father's Household. This was a type of attention to the detail of God's instruction of who was there, who was part of this. 
This is recorded, and we see a lot of this in the first 10 chapters of this book. We see a lot of it in 1 Chronicles 1 through 9, um, and other places throughout the scriptures where these great detail of names written down. And it, and it really shows you the detail of genealogy, and it helps you understand there's men who are, and women who have done great work in this to help us understand the age of the earth and the age of the nation of Israel, when this was happening, where it was happening. It's so precise. God is certainly a God of detail. But clearly, each individual was important to God, and I think that marks what highlighted it for me. Each of them were registered by ancestry in their families and by their father's household. He wrote down each of their names. God was concerned about them. And it's a large number, but each one of them, he was individually writing their names down for a record of it. Now, we learn that God not only cares about the nation, but he cares about individuals. And I think that's so true today. God loves his church, right? We say that. Christ is the head of it. He loves his church. But yet he loves us individually. He knows our names. He knows us from the foundations of the world, right? And so there's this relationship with God, particularly through the Lord Jesus Christ here. And I think he counts us by name. He is not not unaware of how many people are in his church. He knows how many are in his church in Spain and Morocco and Philippines. He, He knows that. He has recorded those things. And our job is to line up behind him and follow the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords through the battle of this life. Fourth, God's senses and God's numbers. Notice we see these great tribes written down in these great numbers, uh, starting in verse 20. You can just quickly look at this. Reuben is the, Israel's firstborn after his counting and gathering, he comes up with 46,500. 22, verse 22, we come up to Simeon, and he records 59,300. Gad records 45,650. Verse 24, verse 26, Judah records 74,600. Issachar, verse 28, records 54,400. Zebulun, Verse 30 records 57,400. Ephraim records another 40,500. The half-tribe Manasseh records another 32,200. Verse 36, Benjamin, he records 35,400. The sons of Dan in 38, verse 38, records 62,700. The sons of Asher records 41,500, and the sons of Naphtali record 53,400. And in the total of all of that, the men who were 20 years and upward, verse 45, were 603,550 individuals ready to go to war. A lot of people struggle with the estimate numbers of this, and I want to talk about that just for a few minutes. If you take this literally, as I do, you can estimate that if one counts these men 20 years and older, they probably represent somewhere around 70% of the male population. If you double that for the women, right, because 
We've always realized we're real close to 50-50 men and women. It may shade one way for a while or shade the other way a little bit. If you double that for the amount of women, then you add a very conservative, very conservative number of 25% more children to the population, you get to 2 million or 2.5 million like that. This is a large group of people, and that's a very conservative figure. These census numbers, I believe, are literal, and I believe they're accurate. They're large numbers, right? And the census, they've created difficulties for liberal theologians. I, unfortunately, I have to go over sometimes and just see what they say, because I think just to stir me up a little bit. They, they find this completely hard to believe. They, they, they can't believe that two or three million people could go out in the wilderness and survive. They come at everything from a human perspective. And so when they start to consider these large families and this customary length of time that they spend in Egypt and, and they start to think about that, they just say it's impossible. But these numbers are real. They're, they're very easy. If you, especially if you think about what went on in Egypt, how long they were there. I think they're very conservative numbers. And large numbers of people living in the wilderness, for, for most people, just transcends the ordinary. But God is not ordinary. And that's what the liberal theologians do all the time. They try to make God ordinary, and he's not ordinary. He brings water out of rocks. He brings bread out of heaven. He doesn't let shoes wear out. He makes longer days. He holds the sun still in one position. He has angels at his beck and call to wipe out enemies. He flies quail in for dinner. He's not ordinary. And what comes back to these liberal theologians is they reject the supernatural over and over and over. And this leads me to believe salvation is supernatural. And they reject that as well, isn't it? And so when I read numbers, I go, well, this is a great, great God <laughs> who can feed and water and care for all of these probably millions of people, but also their livestock in a barren land. God does amazing things. Now, some other objections that they have that I love to think about because God undoes these is they'll say, well, numbers came from David and Solomon's time of history, and they just brought the numbers back. Well, no, they have their own set of numbers. <laughs> and so that's not true. They say numbers were based on a mathematical calculation based in the Hebrew use of letters for numbers. I, I tried to read that, and I got lost in what they were even talking about. It's just not clear. Like, I don't think God's word is muddy, do you? And then we read it. This tribe had this many people. This tribe had this many people. What's the problem? <laughs> they just like to confuse it, like to play this code and all this stuff, and it doesn't work. The figures are symbolic and prophetic. They said, well, these are prophetic of what God was going to do in the future. Well, he would have told us that. They say the census numbers are purposefully exaggerated. I read that from one guy. So the, God's word exaggerates? <laughs> it's not true? <laughs> The, few, the figures are misunderstood because of textual corruption. Man, our, our Old Testament text is so accurate. I mean, and where, and where there are a few questionable spots, we know them. And actually, your new Bibles will mark it in there. You've seen them with brackets in there, right? 
They're very far and few between. So these objections mostly come from those who struggle with supernatural, and often they change dates of book. These are the same people who cannot bear to think that Daniel was written in the 6th century. They cannot believe that. And this is the reason why they can't believe it, because they said it's too accurate. No one could know the exact formation of the governments and how they were all going to work that well. Well, God knows. <laughs> and he told Daniel. <laughs> and so they reject all that. And I just like to think about God in a simple, literal testimony of his biblical record. Because Psalms 147, verse 4 says, he counts and numbers stars. He knows the names of the stars. Isaiah chapter 40 says, lift up your eyes and see. See how he has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host, the one God leads forth the host by number. He calls them by name. I'm thinking he knows the stars. He certainly knows us who are made in his image, right? Matthew chapter 10 verse 30, he says he knows the number of hairs on our head. But isn't, these aren't correct numbers. Revelation chapter 12, verse 4 says a third of the angels followed Satan. Revelation 5, 11 says myriad of myriad of angels and people around the throne, these elders and so forth around the throne. Chapter 7, verse 9 says, After these, I looked at these things, behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes and people and tongues standing before the throne. But God knows who these people are. They're his elect. And the Bible says he knows us from the foundation of the world. He doesn't have a problem knowing numbers. John 6 says that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will certainly not cast them out. Jesus, just the night before his death, says that of all whom the Father gave me, I lost not one of them. This is not a problem for God. And God often works mightily through things that often can't be counted or understood by humanity because he is a God of the supernatural, isn't he? And he has a sovereign plan and he carries it out despite our understanding of things. And so I would encourage you to take these numbers literal. God can feed and water millions of people. It's not hard for him to do. He spoke all of that stuff into existence. Certainly he can do that. Last thought here, five an exception given for not counting the tribe of Levi. Look at verses 47 through 49. The Levites, however, were not numbered among them by the father's tribe. For the Lord had spoken to Moses saying, not only, oh, excuse me, only the tribe of Levi you shall not number, nor shall you take their census among the sons of Israel. Well, this census was for potential men of war, wasn't it? And so the Levites were not counted. Because they're given this special responsibility before God as, as in their priestly duties and to the nation. And look at verses 50 and 51 that he explains this. But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all the furnishings and over all that belongs to, to it. And they shall carry the tabernacle and all the furnishings and they shall take care of it. And they shall go, then they shall also camp around the tabernacle. We'll see this next week of how the tribes get set and then their Levitical tribe is surrounding their camping surrounding the tabernacle we'll see that next week um but excuse me verse 51 so when the tabernacle is set out the the, the levites shall take it down and when the tabernacle encamps the levites should set it up 
but the lame men shall, who comes near it shall be put to death. And so there's some real instruction that helps us understand why he didn't count them. They're not men of war. But notice that God had a role for them. He has a role for every one of the tribes. We'll see that. And he has a camping spot for them. I like it that my Bible has the word camp in there. <laughs> I like camping. Um, uh, but it just shows there's orderly placement. God is a God of order, isn't he? And, he, and, and even when you go back to Exodus, and the stones on the ephod and the dress of the high priests, all those stones are set in order. He has order for all these things. And we see God very orderly. And it doesn't change it in times. Revelations 4, 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon those thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowds. It's just organized. Everything he does is organized. He doesn't miss details. But for this Levitical tribe, they were to be camped around the testimony of the tabernacle. They were to serve the congregation. And, and notice in 53, they're to protect the nation from the wrath of God. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of testimony so that there will be no wrath on the congregation of the sons of Israel. God had one group that was going to come and minister to him and for the people. He had a way of having a relationship with the nation. And so he sets them aside for this. Verse 54, thus the sons of Israel did according to all which the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. So Moses and the nation obeyed God right now. They're going to leave pretty soon, but we're going to look at a few other things before that. And unfortunately, they're going to reject God's word after all of this. After all the gathering of all the materials and everything it took to build this tabernacle and two sets of the law coming down from Mount Sinai with God with fire and smoke and and feeding them with, and watering them and giving them everything they need. In the last moment, they're going to reject it. And it'll be costly. And they'll wander around in the wilderness until there's a group ready to trust the Lord. Again, there'll be great lessons as we go through this. Hope you stick around and we'll work our way through it. Father, thanks for this time together in the Word. We thank you that, God, you are a God of order. We thank you, God, that you love family. It's important to you. You call men and women to fulfill roles so you are most glorified. And we see that even in a passage like this that seems somewhat mundane at first reading. And Lord, we know that you're an orderly God and you know whose are yours. We know that you know us by name. We know you knew us before we were us, before the foundations of the world. We know you know your stars that you created. You've even named them. You know who will be around your throne when all of this comes to an end. What a marvelous, marvelous God you are. We know, God, that you are not stunned in any way from supernatural things. You can do things beyond what our mind can comprehend. And Lord, as we study numbers, we'll see where your gracious care of a group of people who rejected you how you care for them, how you protect them, how you sustain them and provide for them, Lord. Lord, we'll learn that we have a very gracious God, a very kind God. And Father, you're even kind to those who reject you. This world uh, keeps spinning around on its axis. Sun keeps coming up in the east. Most in this 
land we live in are well-fed. You, you bless this nation with rain. and You do so much. And yet so many reject you still, Lord. I pray that we wouldn't, your people, we would walk with you, Lord. And we would let Jesus Christ be the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and the head of the church, Lord, and we would follow him. And we would enjoy the blessings of walking with him, Lord. So I pray this week, Lord, as we go from here, um, there may be some in here who are maybe wandering around in some desert experience because of disobedience. I pray, Lord, that you would bring them to repentance. You would remove them and clear their path and bring them to the blessings that you have for them in this life. Lord, I pray that their wanderings would end shortly. For those who are walking with you, Lord, may we keep our eyes on you. It's easy to think of ourselves, easy to be consumed with our flesh, Lord. Because, Lord, we want to enjoy you. We want to find contentment with you. Even in the difficult trials of life, we want to be content with you, Lord, so help us. May you be blessed by all that we say and do the rest of this week. Bring us back together on Sunday, Lord, for a great time in your word, a great time of fellowship, singing and praising you. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.